0: The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church.
1: January 28, 2024, The Dangers of Discontentment, Part 1.
0: Well, anyway, good morning. Let me open us in prayer and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for your... your Sovereign kindness that shines upon us every single day, and, and even in difficult things, and we're going to be talking about some of those things today. and in the next few weeks, Lord Willing, you are uh, in control of those things, and you are sovereign over them. And so we're so thankful and, and so appreciative of, of the care that you have for us and the reality of Romans 8:28 and 29, which says that you, you do allow cause, all things to happen, um, not just for your glory, which is enough but also for our good, that we might grow in godliness. And so, thank you for that truth. Thank you for these ladies that are here today. I just would ask that you have blessed our conversation. May it be honoring to you. And, and um, let just look forward to what you have for us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so I, I went to Tara a number of weeks ago, and I asked her if she would let me teach some, some classes, because I had something in my mind that I wanted to teach on. And the reason for that is because, I wasn't allowed to write my dissertation on what I wanted to write my dissertation on, my master's dissertation. I wanted to write it on one thing, and they wouldn't let me. And so I got a little bitter, and and I wrote it on something else. I I panicked. I scrambled. I thought about my past and present counseling cases, and I thought about the topic of discontentment. I think discontentment is a major problem in the Christian church and our church as well. And so I, I... I wrote about discontentment and how I believe, and I think Scripture substantiates, that discontentment then leads to anger if it's not dealt with. And that anger then becomes an entrenched bitterness if we're we're not repenting of the anger and seeking God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of of whoever we're angry toward or at. uh, That then entrenches itself in bitterness. And so um, in May, I have to go down and defend that dissertation. And so the best way to know a topic well is to what? Is to teach the topic. And so here I am this morning. Thank you, Tara, for letting me, um, for amusing me, basically. So um, that's why I'm here. I'm here to talk about discontentment uh, because I was a bit discontent and, frankly, a little bitter at times because they wouldn't let me write about what I wanted to write about. Um, And that's actually sadly very true. I could feel the bitterness in my heart as I was writing about bitterness and how (laughs) sinful it is. And so... Anyway, so entirely selfish topic. Thank you for for putting up with me today and over the next few weeks. I've come to see that most or all of us struggle to a greater or lesser extent with discontentment. Discontentment is a dangerous thing because, like I said, if it's left unchecked, if our hearts are allowed to continue in discontentment, then that discontentment is going to lead to anger. And I think we can substantiate that in Scripture. And then when that anger is left unchecked, it, it then morphs into a Settled bitterness, and bitterness can be defined as a, as a settled, generalized animosity or anger toward other people. And that animosity is no longer—it's no longer uh, a, a directed at a specific thing that made us angry. I'm not angry at you because you did this. I'm now—I'm now bitter toward you as a person. That's, that's where the anger goes if it's not checked and repented of. And so we're going to talk about that some more. And, and my wife has providentially um, signed up to teach on bitterness. And she's teaching right after I am. And so that's a really convenient segue for us. We can talk about discontentment and then it can move into the bitterness that she's going to be teaching on. So, so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about discontentment, what it is, what causes discontentment. Um, we're going to look at what we can do about discontentment, how can we help people who are struggling with discontentment. And we're going to look at some biblical case studies of men and women in Scripture who I believe were struggling with discontentment. And at least for some of them, that discontentment did indeed move into bitterness. And so we'll talk about that some more. But first, the Apostle John proclaimed in 1 John 1.5 that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What does John mean by that? What is this lightness and darkness that he's talking about? Those are familiar terms if you've been around the church for any length of time. What does he mean by lightness and darkness? No, there's, in God, there's light. God is light. And in him, there's no darkness. What? Is it sin? sin? Sure, sure. That darkness is, is sin, right? Is, 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 there's no wickedness. There's no sinfulness in God. So instead of that, there's what? Holiness, Holiness right? Perfection, Right? Holiness. He's saying that God is absolutely perfect. He's per- and, and a part of that perfection is being perfectly good. Can we, can we agree to that? Can we say um, amen? God is perfectly good in all that he does, right? And yet we know that there are times when, he doesn't, when it doesn't look that way. Times when he, it seems like he's forgotten us. Have you ever gone through a season of life, I know I have, where it feels like God has forgotten us? Forgotten you? Have you ever experienced that? Oh, that you're under his discipline and that you're struggling under the weight of God's hand, much like David did, where, where he felt like his bones were breaking. He was under God's discipline. Times where we get to the point where we forget this absolute and irrefutable truth that God, by his very nature, is perfectly good. He is perfectly good. Hard things happen. People get sick. We suffer There's persecution in this world. We struggle financially. People betray us. People hurt us. Even Christians can hurt us. Perhaps more than any others, Christians can hurt us. Because we love them and we don't expect it from them. And there are also consequences for our sin, aren't there? Even years after we've confessed and repented of sin in our lives, the consequences can still nag at us like a dog nipping at our heels. We still feel the consequences of past sin. Even when it's been repented of appropriately and properly and in your heart, we still experience those consequences. We experience loss. We experience consequences to our health. If you were a, 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 a drug addict, an alcoholic for many, many years, that even though you may repent of that sin, there are still consequences today. Maybe you have cirrhosis of the liver. Maybe there are other health issues. There's broken relationships as a result of sinful behavior. You might experience financial hardship, damaged relationships, legal problems even. There, there are, I believe there are Christians, sincere, undoubtedly saved people sitting in jail for, for the rest of their life because of sin. And they've repented of that sin, but there are still legal consequences to their sin. So these are all painful things, and yet God is sovereign over these things. Amen? God is sovereign over difficult things. So who can give us a good Old Testament example that clearly illustrates God's sovereignty?
2: Job. Who?
0: Job, Job, absolutely. What about Job would illustrate God's sovereignty?
2: He chose for him to suffer. Mm -hmm. And he was even in control over what Satan could or couldn't do to him. Absolutely. And then he he blesses and he takes away.
0: That's a great example. Job is an example of somebody who was subjected to... God's will, and, and God God's will in this case was allowing Satan to execute whatever whatever Satan wanted to do, short of killing him. And, and there was a, ter- a tremendous and terrible story of of the consequences of that. But God was sovereignly in control of every detail, wasn't He? What, what other examples can you think of in Scripture? Joseph. Joseph, that's a good one. That's the one that first came to my mind. What What about Joseph illustrates sovereignty? His whole life. His
2: whole life. Yeah. God. <laughs> What looked like was for, meant for evil, God meant it for good because God knew that down the road there was going to be this famine and he had Joseph in place and trained to where he could then take care of the nation of Israel.
0: So God even, even used the acts of wicked men, in this case Joseph's brothers, for his glory, didn't he? He allowed or even caused men to behave in wicked, wicked ways. You now Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers unthinkable my brothers treated me badly sometimes they never sold me into slavery but he he was thrown into jail he worked for the pharaoh he got all kinds of problems he was left in jail because the cupbearer forgot about him imagine that life was hard for him but then he gets to work for the pharaoh again and he got to preserve the nation of egypt and the israelites as well didn't he and when his brothers came to him terrified or he summons them he said in Genesis 50, don't, don't worry, don't fear, because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so therefore, even though you were evil, your, 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 your acts and your ways were wicked, God meant that for a greater purpose, right?
2: And even in his early life, he was full of pride. You know, he was lording a... no. over his
0: brothers. L- lacked a little discernment there with his, uh, with his dreams that he was so eager to interpret for them. Yeah. King Hezekiah is another wonderful example of God's sovereignty, if you're familiar with that story. In Second Chronicles thirty, Hezekiah called the sons of Israel to repentance. He sent out messengers to the sons of Israel, to the leaders in the land, and calling them to return to Jerusalem and to repent of their sin. He was warning not them not to stiffen their necks, meaning turn away and be stubborn, be difficult like their fathers. And they all laughed him, laughed at the messengers. They mocked the messengers, except for four men. For Judah, Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun. They softened their hearts toward God. They responded to his calling. And in Second Chronicles 30, verse 12, we can see the reason for that where Ezra writes that the hand of God was on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king commanded them. God had worked in their hearts sovereignly To enable them to respond to Hezekiah's call to repentance. Most of the people rejected Hezekiah's call. They were hardened people. They were hardened people. But these three men were able to respond because God softened their hearts to do so. I love that story. God wasn't standing back waiting for them to respond. He sent out the messengers, And he was sovereignly working in certain people's hearts so that they could respond to his call to Repentance. And you can see all these if-then statements in Scripture, if you pay attention to them. God is saying in Scripture, if you do this, then I will do that. And that kind of opens the door to wonder, well, that gives us some kind of sovereign control over our own lives. Because God said these conditional statements, if you do this, then I will do that to these people. John Piper writes that conditional talk from God should never be taken to mean that he's depending on us to make the condition or that we should consider ourselves as self-reliant in meeting the condition that he just laid out.
1: Can we even see that sovereignty with, you know, an unwilling servant like Jonah, who mm-hmm. was told, go, and he's like, oh no, I'm not going. And the Lord still calls him to go. I and mean, he could have chosen someone else, mm-hmm. but
0: he didn't. Absolutely. And we're, we're going to talk some more about Jonah in future weeks, because Jonah is a great example of someone who is so discontent, that that he was um, led to suicidal ideations and, and on that on that boat where he's telling the sailors just throw toss me overboard just kill me now so that you might might live he was he was so anyway we'll get into Jonah later but but there's so the, yeah there's this there's this the point being God is in control God is in control oh, even over evil circumstances and wicked people we see it again with the Old Testament use of the pagan kings God used the pagan kings. For his own purposes. When God gives us conditions, and this isn't a lecture on, on, uh, on, on um, election or, or, or sovereignty specifically, but when God gives us conditions, he doesn't leave us to our own devices to figure out those conditions, to meet those conditions. He gives us the ability to do so. So what about the New Testament? Who can give us some nice examples from the New Testament about God's sovereignty? Christ on the cross was the, the biggest biggest illustration of God's sovereignty, wasn't it? That did not come as a surprise to him. I remember as a kid discovering that for the first time. I was just blown away that God would actually cause his son to die. It was, was an amazing, just an amazing revelation. Yeah, Christ on the cross. What else? Paul on the road to
1: Damascus. Mm-hmm. Yep. Completely,
0: changed completely, completely changed the direction in which he was walking, absolutely. Yeah, and he wrote in Romans 8, right? God uses all things together, works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those are, those are, that's a promise that God is making things happen for a reason. And that reason is, is for our good, and then he just explains in verse 29, and we're going to talk more about these verses later, but in verse 29 he explains what that good is. The good is growing in Christ's likeness to so be more conformed to the image of his Son. Acts two twenty three, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Ephesians one four, we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. God is sovereign over all of life from the very beginning and from our from our very from our birth all the way through to our eternity. God is sovereign over those things. So what can we conclude then about how God works in this world from these passages? These passages were written thousands of years apart. Thousands of years from Job and Jonah and, and King Hezekiah and Joseph all the way through to Jesus on the cross and and his his saints who were martyred. What can we conclude about how God works in this world? He's in control. Yeah, he's in control. Right. I keep drumming this point home because we're, I'm going somewhere with it. God is in control. And he works in his own ways. You know, William Cooper wrote that wonderful song about how God works in his own mysterious ways. He works in these mysterious ways. Times might be hard. You might be going through difficult things. Evil might be present in your life. Darkness might be present in your life. Difficult and unpleasant people are always going to be around. I'm dealing with a difficult and unpleasant person in my life right now. Nobody here. Don't worry. But I'm dealing with that right now. Difficult and unpleasant people will always be around. That God is sovereignly using those people and He's sovereignly using those circumstances for good. So He sovereignly works in all things for good. So the topic of this class is discontentment. What did I call it? The dangers of discontentment. Oh, that's good. That's good. The dangers of discontentment. Why would I have been rambling for the last 15 minutes or so about God's sovereignty in a class on discontentment?
1: Because that's
0: what happens all we forget. Forget what? That
1: God is working whatever it is yeah. that is making me discontent for my good somehow. Yeah. I don't
0: define my good the same way God defines my good. Right. Absolutely right. God, and, that, and that's critical. Our definition of good is relative, <laughs> and, and contentment is relative. Contentment and, and, and our feel the, the, the idea in our heart that we're satisfied with what we have in life is relative, especially when we sit and compare ourselves to other people, which... Is, is a, I don't recommend it. Don't start. Mm-hmm. So it's not a good thing. I think discontentment is a major problem in the church today. I led with that. It's a major problem in our church, I think. In every church, in every heart, there's discontentment. And I also believe that Scripture indicates, and here's a, here's a position statement for you. I believe that Scripture indicates that our discontentment is rooted in a failure to understand and appropriate the promises given to us in Scripture. That God in his sovereign control is perfectly good. I'll say that again. I, I, discontentment is fundamentally rooted in a failure to understand and appropriate the promises given in Scripture that God in his sovereign control is perfectly good. And here's the premise. The premise is, is sinful discontentment indicates one of three things. Either we believe that God is not sovereign. right? God is not in control. Or, we refuse to submit to his sovereignty. That's a possibility, right? Have you ever refused, rebelliously refused to submit to God's sovereignty? Or third, we believe that God is sovereign, but we don't believe that God is perfectly good in his sovereignty. We believe that God is sovereign and in control, but he just has it out for us. He doesn't care for us like we think he should. We believe that God is sovereign, but we don't believe that God is perfectly good in his sovereignty. Naomi came to believe that. She bluntly told Ruth and Orpah in Ruth chapter 1 to go home because the hand of the Lord had turned against her. She was bitter. She was bitter and she was angry because the hand of the Lord, she said, had turned against her. She had lost hope in the sovereign goodness of God. She believed that God was in control, but she didn't believe that God was lovingly caring for her. She believed that God was sovereignly in control. Otherwise, she wouldn't have said that God's hand had turned against her. But she also believed that God's sovereign care and sovereign control over her circumstances was for her harm and not for her good.
2: Wouldn't that also be similar? Who was the man who, um, I don't remember what it was, he was paralyzed or lame or something, and the people said, well, who sinned? His parents, mm-hmm. and so they, and, and Jesus said,
0: neither nobody. He
2: was that way so
0: that I could be glorified. Isn't that that verse horrifies me? That passage horrifies me just a little bit because it, that passage tells us that this guy was was, and i I've, I've talked about this before because it, I, I'm uh, almost obsessed a little bit about it. I, because that passage, it, this man was lame from birth. He lived a a miserable and painful and horrifying existence, begging for alms or or coins or whatever, begging for morsels of food, not because he had sinned, not because his parents had sinned, but because he was to be an object lesson for other people. His suffering, and he suffered horribly, was an object lesson for other people. Isn't that horrifying?
2: I think it's more horrifying to take on the sins of your, your parents. Like, I don't know, to have like the generational punishment based on the choices that they made.
0: Yeah, but God is still. So-
2: it's
1: still nothing we've done, but I don't know.
0: God is still sovereign even over those things too, right? We don't necessarily have to take on the sins of our parents. I think about well. well the Consequences of sin, yeah. We get to wear the consequences of our of parent's sin, certainly. So maybe it's easier
1: to believe that God is perfectly good when there's someone else to blame. Sure. And it's not, like, God causing the suffering so that he would be glorified.
0: Right. Yeah. All I know is, is that man, Bartimaeus is another example, suffered horribly. And, and and the suffering was as a, was was an object lesson for other people and for themselves. I'm sure they grew as a result of their suffering, but they, they were an object lesson for other people. Thank you for bringing out that example what about was... Jeremiah. Jeremiah, tell me about Jeremiah. What about him? Life, yeah.
2: and there was nothing good. He was <laughs> yes. God's prophet, but there was nothing.
0: Yeah, the there lamenting was never prophet.
2: Like a, a victory in there from what it was being shown, and so his entire life. Was one of suffering and persecution,
0: mm-hmm. and but he got to write Jeremiah thirty-one. I, you know, time is coming, says the Lord, when 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 you, you'll be able to reach out to me personally. That's a wild paraphrase, sorry, but it, Jeremiah thirty-one is one of the greatest chapters in Scripture, in my opinion. He got to write. He got to write that, but it was a result of a lot of suffering.
3: And he was so tender-hearted. Any time we talked about the Lord, he started crying. Yeah that our vision is limited to 99 years and as long as we keep a 99 year vision then that's what we think but once you pass into eternal life all of this stuff was for a reason but now we just see it as this is our life, this is what happened we don't realize that we're sojourners and that we're on to something else and so we keep it you know, maybe in Old Testament times 300 years, 500 year vision whatever you want to call it but currently on this earth 80 years, 90 years oh this person and we don't understand our suffering and we can't understand our suffering I had a woman the other day said why did this child die? let it be nonverbal why did God let it go through these surgeries why is it in the hospital? and I just hugged her and I said you know maybe in heaven we'll know Maybe in heaven we'll be too concerned with worshiping and praising God that it won't matter. But our vision is so small. Mm. We look through lenses of this life on earth, the day we were born and the day that we die. And we don't die. We have eternal life. But our we're so limiting
0: our vision. Amen. That's really good. Absolutely. We are we're so limited by what we can see. And, and what we can experience, and we really don't understand how God is working in our lives. Sometimes we get this, this rare jewel or gem of of, uh, of clarity, and God allows us to see what's going on. But oftentimes, like Job, we'll never know, maybe not until heaven, maybe not even then. We don't know. But I, I think that there will be a lot of surprises in heaven when we get there, and, and, a, and a lot of, wow, really you are working through this and that and these difficult things for your glory. And, and thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. So in difficult circumstances, hard things and suffering, we fail to submit and delight submit to and a delight in God's sovereign care. Jesus said in, in Luke 18 that God is ultimately good. His ways may be shrouded in mystery, but they're always oriented toward his glory and toward the good of his people. Always. And that's why theology is so important. Understanding scripture is so important. I remember an older gentleman told me once, you know, we were talking about how I was teaching a Sunday school class about something, and he turned to me and I said, You know, I, I'm glad that you like theology. I just love Jesus. And and, and it was sweet. I mean I, I appreciate the sentiment, but he's not setting himself up well when hard times come. It's easy to derail when we lose our grip on the truths of scripture. We have to understand God's sovereignty. It's so, so important to understand and appropriate the promises and the truths in Scripture regarding God's sovereignty. God is ultimately good, but we may not understand what he's doing. The Apostle James tells us in James 1, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Apostle declared in 1 Timothy 4 that everything created by God is good. It's good. Meaning, it's good for us. It's good. So the premise here is that while there are a variety of causes for discontentment, or perhaps catalysts would be a better word, because the, t- the nugget's already there, because we have we we're, we're already already sinful, we're already prone to discontentment. So there's a variety of catalysts for discontentment. There's a variety of many different possible causes for discontentment. Ultimately, all of those causes are rooted in one thing, and that's an inward, idolatrous rebellion in the heart against God's sovereign care. That's key. So don't forget that while we're going through the next few weeks as we explore this issue of discontentment. It's an inward rebellion in the heart against God's sovereign will, his sovereign care for us. And I And hope, Hopefully we'll be able to unpack that statement and, and, and work through it a little more so we can understand it a little better. So let's start by defining our terms. we want to circle back to this issue of of sovereignty because it's so, so important in the topic that we're talking about. But I want to turn our attention to the issue of discontentment specifically right now. And and I found it easier to define... I got in all kinds of trouble with my professor because he didn't like it. I, I found it easier to define discontentment by defining its opposite first, by defining what contentment is. He thought that was weird because why would you define something by defining something else? And I... It's okay. A little bit bitter, but that's okay.
1: <laughs>
0: so what is this? in May. I know. I defend my point. He probably <laughs> won't even be there. He'll be smoted with a flu or something, and he won't be there. So what is discontentment? That's what happens when you go off track. You just start saying things that... Not being nothing.
1: being Not Inward rebellion.
0: Inward rebellion against God's sovereign care, right? Absolutely. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a wonderful book called... Um, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's excellent. It's uh, there. There are different versions. He was a, a thank you, a Puritan writer, and, and so I have. I asked Pastor Corey to get me some copies because I was working with some, some guys with regarding discontentment, and he got me a version that was written in the original English Puritan language, and and it was horrible. It was horrible. And so, uh, if you're gonna buy the book. Make sure you get a, a, at least somewhat revised version of it. Um, but it's a real treat. It's a real treat. It's called uh, rare, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. What do you see in the title of the book? What does it tell you right off the bat? It's rare. Christian contentment, is, a, is, is his, his argument, his premise is it's rare. And he gives us reasons for that. But valuable. But valuable. It's a jewel. Yeah, absolutely. So here's how he defined contentment. I like this. Christian contentment, he writes... This is why I wanted to put it in there, because I really like the way he put it. Christian contentment, he writes, is that sweet, and I did smoosh it in there, I just said it later, I kind of snuck it in the back door, Is is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I'll read that again. Christian contentment, he writes, is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. In other words, it's a free and complete submission to God's will. It's a free and complete submission to God's will. You can see, I hope, why we started with sovereignty, and we're going to circle back to sovereignty, because a part of of a major component of contentment is being able to submit to God and his will for us. Regardless of what that looks like, regardless of whether it's fun and happy or, or hard and, and painful, we need to be able to submit to God's sovereign will for us and our lives. It's a free and complete submission to His will. So does contentment come naturally? Oh, do you know any, ever know anybody that just seemed naturally chill and happy and, and seem to be really content? Your husband was? That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, that's good. That's sweet. They're are few and far between, aren't they? But there there are some that are just a real blessing to be around, a real a real treasure, a jewel even to be around. Turn with me to Philippians four verse eleven. This is Burroughs' key text for his book, The Rare Jewel. Philippians four eleven. The Apostle Paul. What do we know about the Apostle Paul? We know that he was saved suddenly and, and, and miraculously, but we also know that he we know that he was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a the the, the you know lear, a learned man, and we know that he suffered terribly, didn't he? He suffered terribly. And yet here's what he says in verse 11 of Philippians 4. And this is the key text for Jeremiah Burroughs. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. So what do we see in verse 11 right off the bat? It's a learned trait or characteristic, isn't it? We don't, by and large, generally suddenly come out content and happy people. We're not naturally, positively disposed to trials and suffering. We're not naturally joyful when God brings difficult things into our lives, are we? Things are hard and our our sinful, immediate reaction is not joyful celebration, praising God for His sovereign care. And, And he also writes in verse 11, that he's learned this contentment in whatever situation he is in. It's not a natural condition. It's a learned condition. And and it covers everything and everything that he could encounter. He hasn't said, well, I learned to be content in the things that God brought to me back then. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever situation God brings to me. Every situation I have learned how to be content. Does that mean he didn't? Maybe even panic a little bit as the ships were sinking and he's floating around in the water for days. No, probably not. But he's learned this art of of contentment, of being settled in his heart, of submitting to God and his sovereign care. Contentment is an inward submission of the heart, an inward satisfaction no matter what's going on in the world around us. And it is, writes Burroughs, the duty, glory, and excellence of the Christian to be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment. You can bet when, when the world is falling down around you and, and life is in chaos and, and you're suffering, you can bet that people are going to look at you and wonder, what in the world? How can you be so peaceful and relaxed and calm when you're, when you're going through the suffering? How, how can that be? And we're all going to suffer. I mean, it's just the nature of life. If you don't suffer financially or, or in relationships, then you probably will. Then you're going to die unless the Lord comes back before that happens. And you're probably going to suffer as a part of that dying process. Are you going to be able to lay there and 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 praise God and be at peace in your heart and just amaze the people that are around you by how, how sweet your outward um, composure is because you've learned that sweet, rare jewel of Christian contentment. It's our responsibility as, as believers in Christ to learn and condition our hearts toward this thing called contentment. I think you'd agree that King David had quite the rocky life, right? Quite, quite the traumatic life. But in Psalm 62, he writes these wonderful words, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. David was content in, in, in his waiting. You'll notice, though, that it's, it's interesting that he writes these two very similar statements. The first one says, my God, my soul is waiting in silence. But in the second one, he's instructing his soul to wait in silence. When difficult times are coming are overwhelming us, Stop and and, and command yourself, direct yourself. I'm not talking about power and words, but just remind yourself that God is sovereignly good and that our hope is rested in him. We don't tend to struggle with an overabundance of contentment, do we? I don't think anyone has ever been accused of being too content. I think our problem is the opposite. It's, It's this discontentment. Keith Miller wrote the quick script, some of the quick scripture reference books, if you know about those. Uh, they're really nice little books. Of, of They go through a bunch of uh, sins, effectively, and then gives you scriptures of how to address those sins. They're really nice. And Keith Miller wrote one for men, and I think a, a, a youth one as well. Um, and he writes that, that discontentment is a dissatisfaction with one's possessions, status, circumstances, and ultimately for the Christian, God's sovereign will. It's rooted in a failure to trust in God's sovereign goodness. And the psalmist shows us in Psalm 107 what the orientation of our heart should be looking like. He, say, he says this Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love is enduring forever. So we should be praising him, giving thanks to God, even in difficult circumstances. Always and always. always, and always. But instead of the settled meditation on God's steadfast love and his goodness, we allow discontentment to grow in our hearts, don't we? You may be discontent with your own lot in life. Having to suffer the consequences of past sin or even present sin. Or perhaps your discontentment stems from comparing yourself with others. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. When you compare yourself to other people, you, you... manifest these sins of coveting, of jealousy, of envy. Perhaps your husband isn't all that he could have been. I didn't look at anyone in particular when I said that. I'm trying to look down. Don't make eye contact. Perhaps your husband isn't what you hoped for. Perhaps you had these great dreams as a little girl about who who you would marry and your lives together and that the Lord would come back and take you both. And your husband isn't who you thought he would be. Perhaps you've experienced that seed of discontentment in your hearts, in your marriage, that has eventually, over time, blossomed into full fledged bitterness. We have a marriage conference coming up in April. Marriage for the long run. Dr. John Street will be addressing these issues. I strongly recommend you come if you can. Discontentment, even for the unbelievers, a grumbling in our hearts, believing that God's best for us does not meet our needs. Or somehow fails to reflect that love and care he has for us. And so when we lose a husband. A spouse. How do we respond to that circumstance? How do we do it in a way that says God I, I, I'm hurting. It's okay. God gave us emotions. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to, to cry. To weep. To to, to mourn. That's, those are all beautiful things. But do you allow that. To morph into a bitterness and, and, and a sinfulness that darkens your heart. Even a, even a husband that leaves you. you know, you're left alone. We can, we, can, we, can, we can celebrate God's goodness and look for his ways and try to understand his ways and difficult things. Or we can become completely imploded on ourselves and, and become bitter and angry and hurt by by the actions of others. Even Job, God's servant, who was described as blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil, the very first verse of Job chapter 1, came to the point of discontentment with the way God had allowed him to be afflicted. He declares in Job 35, verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. He wants to have an audience with somebody. Somebody listen to me. Oh, that I had the indictment written on my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. And here's the punchline, verse 37. I would give him, that's God, an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Can you imagine that? Like a prince, I would approach God and defend my ways. Job came to that place where, understandably, I think, he had come to the end of his rope he came to believe that God had wronged him in some way and he had a defense. God, you've made a mistake. Here's what you've done wrong. He had a case against the Almighty. And we know how that went for him, don't we? Spectacular sovereign sarcasm in, at work. Where were you? How, who do you think you are? How do you think you can challenge me in all that I have done? Go on, explain it to me, because I'm confused. He didn't say that, but this kind of the message he was given. Help me here. Help me understand how you can think better than I do what's best for you. That's really what we're saying when we buck against God's sovereign will. When we become discontent, when we become angry, when we become bitter, we're telling God that he's wrong, that he's made a mistake, that we know better than he does. Discontentment covers a broad range of cognitive and emotional experiences. Including coveting, and coveting, en- envy, jealousy. We envy and covet what other people have. We become dissatisfied with our lot when we compare ourselves to them. It's often a disease of relativity. Is there ever a time when discontentment could be appropriate? When is it okay? I see a nod over here. Why, why would discontentment be okay? I
3: think when we see injustices, like when Christ went into the temple and said, you know, what are you selling? What are you doing? They were doing it in the eyes of God. And he wasn't content with the way that they thought they were doing religious things. And so when we see an injustice in the world, we need to be discontent. Because Christ, he counts our tears. And if he counts our tears, it means we are not always happy. And like I said, always, and you add an L, in always. And we don't always see that. So when we're discontent, it shows something in us. That says, okay, either I need to check myself, or I need to check the situation, and then change it myself. You know, when you see an injustice in the world, like you're saying, if a husband leaves, or in my case, if there was abuse, I couldn't sit there and say, okay, God, this is fine, I'm going to suffer. There had to be something inside of me, which is the Holy Spirit, to say, we got to deal with this.
0: There's a cognitive response, right? We respond. How do we respond? What is, that? What is the ruling in our heart, that allows us to respond or causes us to respond the way we do, right? And so in an abusive situation, we can respond, we can still respond in a godly way. Even even in discontentment, we can be godly. That discontentment can, however, if, if not carefully managed, turn into something else that's not nearly as, as uh, noble or godly, right? We've got to watch that. We've got to watch our hearts. A- discontentment with our
1: own sin.
0: Yeah, absolutely. With what, with what we're doing in our lives and how it's not pleasing to God. Yeah, discontentment with our own sin, with our our spiritual growth. We might not be growing as fast or as efficiently as we think we should. Discontentment, like I said, is rooted in a lack of satisfaction in God's provision. It's a grumbling dissatisfaction with the circumstances that God has sovereignly brought into our lives. God brought abuse into your life. He allowed it to happen. But he was sovereignly over that. And so for most women in abusive situations... There's, there's sinful responses. And, and probably for you, too. But overall, how do we, how do we redeem that, that situation such that God is glorified in it? And that's, that's what we need to look for, right? The ability, that, the pathway to redemption, redeeming the circumstances that we're in.
3: I think that's where I learned the whole temporal part of life. You know, everything here is for his glory. And we can't say, oh... Well, I'm going to walk in my sin and be okay with it. We can't say, I'm going to walk in somebody else sinning against me. We have to seek. Like David, I mean, think about it. That Sheba, it's like, okay, he rapes Bathsheba. Is that okay? No. But did God use it? Yes. And the way that David took off and said, oh, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to try to set it up to kill her husband so that he could look more righteous. So are we doing it out of looking righteous? Or are we doing it out of intimacy with Christ
0: and with God? Amen. All good reasons to be prepared for the dark things, the hard things, before they come. Because if you're not prepared, life is going to derail. You're, you're not going to hold it together. So, David wrote in Psalm, one, in Psalm 16, you, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you think David understood this concept of contentment in Christ or contentment in God? Of course he did. He's content with his lot in life, even with the ups and downs, the big bumps and the the problems and and yes, even the wickedness, even the sin. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Philippi, with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's recognizing that 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 his goal, as everything is to is to glorify God, to honor Christ in everything, including the hard things. The psalmist writes in Psalm 107 that God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. These men knew contentment, didn't they? They knew contentment. We might blame our circumstances for our discontentment. We're really good at blaming, you know. What did Adam say? Oh, God, it was the wife that you gave to me. She's the problem here. We're really good at blaming others, blaming circumstances, blaming that, that sore ankle for my grumpiness. It was the wife,
2: it was the wife
1: that you gave
0: yes. me. Yes, The double, double whammy. He did not. He really buried himself with that statement, yeah. didn't he? It's the wife that you gave me. God, yeah, boy, that's brazen. We blame our circumstances for our discontentment. And it's, and it's always an idolatrous sin against God because we're treasuring something or someone more than we treasure Christ, ultimately.
2: Two things come to my mind. He made me do it. That's a common refrain. Mm-hmm. We can In the blaming, it's like, well, they made me do it. They pushed my buttons instead of the recognition that I made the choice to respond the way that I did. Um... What was the other thing I was thinking of? Kind of feedbacking on what Tara was saying. It's okay to be discontented with our sin, but we can carry that too far as well. Right. And we can flagellate and just beat ourselves up and, oh, woe is me, and I'm never going to get over this. So that even that can go too far.
0: And that can go into sin, right? I mean, even, even the death of a spouse, the, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the Psychiatric Institute of... Crazy people says that um, says that um, that mourning. If, if you're mourning the death of a spouse for more than I think it's like two two weeks or two months, two months. I think it's two months. If you're, if you're still mourning in, in a significant way after the death of your spouse for more than two months, you now have a diagnostically significant disorder, and and you should be prescribed medication. That is, and, and I. Uh, the psychiatric institution came out recently and, and you know, furthered that statement. But there is a sense in which mourning, even even mourning the loss of a spouse, can morph into sin if we if we marinate in that and allow it to affect us negatively, sinfully. Exactly.
1: Four
2: months of mourning. I ask God to forgive me because it's all feeling sorry for myself.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, you, I, I have no doubt that you were broken hearted and, and you were you went to God and at some point yeah thank you that's really helpful
2: well and just from the worldly perspective that we should after two months like move on you know like right. life isn't that important to them and so uh, relationships aren't that important either and so if you're still not sinfully but mourning you know you need help medically, chemically, to make yourself feel better. That's just, it's just a really sad state of our world.
0: It is. It is. I, I can remember, El- Elizabeth, you, you said once, I think it was that high school group, you were helping in the kitchen. I'll never forget this. You, 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 uh, it was getting on into the winter months, and, and you said that you were going to stop serving. And, and we asked, well, thank you for, for being with us. Why? And just just so we knew, you know, it was wasn't an accusation. It was just a curious, you know, why? And, and your response was because it was so hard to come home to a dark house because your husband would always have the lights on for you. And, and that 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 moved me. It really touched my heart. That that was something that that you remembered, and, and it was a, a triggered grief in your heart. So, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians three that while he had all the qualifications the world could offer, he was a learned man. He was a man with a special position amongst the Jews. He had all that the world could offer. He had come to this place where he didn't care about any of that. He said he had more reason for confidence in the flesh than anybody else. He was an Israelite, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a ranking Pharisee and blameless under the law. And yet he cared nothing of those things by God's grace. All he cared about was Christ. He had learned the secret of contentment. It's important to note, we're going to wrap up shortly, that uh, the Christian's contentment is not necessarily rooted in sufferings or trials. It's not necessarily rooted in sufferings or trials. Paul boasted in his weakness, in his suffering, because that magnified God's power in him. You can go through difficult things, through difficult trials. Through long extended trials and remain content because true Christian contentment is not based on our circumstances. It's based on what? Based on Christ, right? And what Christ has done for us. Hebrews 13, 5 says this. Be content with what you have. For Christ has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So then we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. In Philippians 4, again, he writes that he has learned this art of contentment regardless of his circumstances. I've learned the secret of facing plenty, he says. And he's learned facing difficult times where he hasn't had anything. Not just when the times are good, he's easy to be content when the times are good. He's also learned to be content. When, when he's hungry and in, in need. It's also important to note that discontentment doesn't necessarily indicate a lack of something. So first, it doesn't, it's not necessarily rooted in sufferings or trials. Second, it doesn't necessarily indicate a lack of something. We can have a surplus of blessings from the Lord, can't we, and still be discontent. Because discontentment is a disease of relativity. Relativity. How we feel about our circumstances is relative to the perception of our circumstances and the perception of reality. You might have a a wonderful husband, for example, but still covet someone else's spouse. How he treats his wife, perhaps, or provides for his family or leads his home. Maybe that seems better than the way your husband does it. You might have plenty of money coming in, but still be discontent because you want more. Because the gal next door has more. It's a disease of relativity. It's not about our possessions. It's not about our relationships. It's not about our circumstances. Discontentment is about our interpretation of those things in light of our own expectations. There's a a perceived lack of sufficiency. Not a real lack of sufficiency. Not an absolute lack of sufficiency. But a perception of a lack of, of sufficiency. We believe that we don't have enough That God's provision is not enough. We may even come to believe, like Naomi, that, that God has chosen to withhold his hand of blessing from us. Or like Job, that we're being dealt with harshly by him. Jerry Bridges writes in his wonderful book, Respectable Sins, that discontentment builds as ongoing circumstances present trials to our faith. And these circumstances don't necessarily need to be mountains. That's why this is such an insidious problem. Our circumstances could be significant, but they can also be minor stressors that are accumulating over time. Our circumstances can be minor stressors accumulating over time. When our circumstances draw out day after day, week after week, month after month, like the thorn in Paul's side, and the pain becomes unbearable, or not even unbearable, but but, but long-suffering, we can come to be discontent. And so we're out of time. Um, does anybody have any thoughts on what we've come through so far? Next time we're going to talk about how we recognize discontentment in ourselves and in others. It can be difficult to spot sometimes. It can be hidden behind a veil of, of godliness or even um, this, 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 this image of, 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 of seeking God's face and seeking righteousness. And, and yet really it's discontentment in our hearts. We're going to talk about some people in Scripture who... Manifest this discontentment and, and where it went in their lives. We'll talk about um, Cain. We'll talk about Naomi some more. We'll talk about Job. We'll talk about Noah. We'll talk about these, these saints in the Old Testament, these people in the Old Testament who struggled and wrestled and fought with God over their circumstances. And we'll talk about what we can do about discontentment. So, any thoughts? I didn't get through very much of my material. I've been given three weeks, and I was told I would I would be um, imprisoned if I went longer. So, be good.
2: Because
0: Any questions? Okay. Yeah. All right. Let me pray for us, Father. Thank you for uh, your Word. Thank you for um, helping us to understand and work through difficult things, uh, things that touch our hearts because um, we all have worked through difficult things. Some of them much more difficult than others, and we think about difficult situations like abuse and the death of loved ones. And we we wonder, how can it be that we can get through that? How can we survive those things and please you? And yet your word gives us direction on how to do exactly that. And so our our desire, our heart is to please you in all that we do. Our heart, our desire is to help others to do so as well. And so as we think about counseling others who struggle with this issue of discontentment, um, help us to hone in on those root causes, the underlying sins that are causing that discontentment. Father, I just pray for Pastor Phil as he steps up this morning that that you would bless his, his sermon preparation retroactively because he's already done it, I trust. But I just would ask that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear what you have for us this morning, that we might apply it, that we might go out of here this morning changed. People that were are better more honoring to you more pleasing to you as a result of what we hear this morning as a result of our worship so thank you for this time thank you for these ladies and uh, all that you're doing in their lives even today i pray these things in the name of your very precious son jesus christ amen